Okay, got that going. Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 8 is over, but we are just getting started. Here on Post Show Recaps, my name is Jessica Lease. The name of the episode is The Sanctuary. And fresh off the bus from Federation Summer Camp, here is my number one, Mr. Mike Bloom. Yeah, the Andorians really uh, put in a bad word about it. They really did the Camp Granada version of uh, how bad Federation Summer Camp is. I had a pretty good time. The hollow canoes were uh, subpar at best, but I can't complain about too much else. Yeah, was the food in the replicators all right? I hear that I hear it sometimes pretty bad. Yeah, the chefs were a little weird in like the Neelix variety. I'm just thinking about like what hot American summer transplanted <laughs> onto Federation summer camp. That's all I can think of at this moment. There's there's definitely an alien race that's just a can of vegetables. Yeah, exactly. And they they have their own sexual habits as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think we've we've learned Nothing from Star Trek, if not that everybody's got their thing. Yeah, I mean, to quote the Undiscovered Country, you know, if you keep your genitals in different areas than others, who's to say what your habits are as well? It's it's wise words for you, Mike. Um, <laughs> I <got nothing> else. <laughs> I, I'm really excited to talk about this episode, Jess, because I'm not sure what it is. Maybe our sort of analysis will break down. This, for me, is like the moment I really fell in love with Star Trek Discovery, the series. I- I'm still trying to wrap my head around why, because I don't think it was necessarily like, I think it's it's been a very strong, consistent group of episodes, and I don't feel like this one knocked it out of the park as uh, more than a-, a lot of these other episodes. Maybe for me, it is hammering home, at least at the moment, this episodic structure that I'm really excited about, which is essentially the episodic structure of Deep Space Nine, in my opinion, where I think after two seasons of like, really interconnected episodes this has sort of now segued into a okay we're going to have an adventure of the week but there's still going to be elements that tie into the overall storylines which i feel like again deep space nine did when it started to really experiment with serialization in the franchise well that's that's true mike and that's something i think we talked about that a bit last week which is the direction that we thought it was going to go in but you know i think this the season has been so consistently good that when an episode is not amazing, it kind of feels like a letdown. And that's mm. kind of how I felt this episode. I think in any other season of maybe any other Star Trek, even my much vaunted Deep Space Nine, I think I would be more than happy with what we just saw. But now I'm kind of thinking, well, I wish I'd wish we'd gotten a little bit more. I wish we'd either mm. gotten more of an adventure or more of a story push. I mean, it is interesting. I think we talked about this. I can't remember uh, which episode, but how, you know, it really did split the difference between adventure and really like ship based character development stuff. But maybe I was just so elated that it did seem like we were finally settling into this. I mean, I say that now until we get into like episode 13 and it's like, oh, we're we're combining the Quajon people with the Earth people that were met in episode three. I am more than fine if we don't have that team up at the end of the season like we did in season two, right? If it was just more of a, yeah, we doted upon this, we had our moments move on, and it still felt like its own segmented adventure because I do not feel like we're going back to Quajon anytime soon. But at the same time, it was a great way to sort of like move forward with advancing books plot and maybe advancing who might turn out to be the big bad of the season, at least for these last five episodes. Yeah. And I, before we advance any further with this, I think we want to stop down for a moment and thank our sponsors. And those are our friends over at Pluto TV. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. 
Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Jet drop in, uh, much like Discovery did here. And for the first time, Jess, it felt like we've they finally dropped in on a planet they were not like... Uh, greeted at the door by somebody saying, turn around, about face, and leave. Uh, and maybe that's just because the planet was under its own form of siege and because they sent out the call for help initially. Yeah, and you know, Osira even said, drop in and watch free. Check out my ship, scan it, do, all, do everything you want. Yeah, is this technically the diplomatic approach that Saru was talking about? Is the Pluto TV approach of drop in and watch? Uh, maybe maybe so. I think I think Saru would definitely be a Pluto TV viewer. If they have that, they might have it in the 32nd century. Who's to say? Well, it helps that he has those big ass pupils uh, that he can wind at any point. Like he could probably watch so many different channels at once that they were viewable to him. It's true. And, you know, once once you've gone through your Vaharai, you can watch as many channels of Pluto TV as you want. I did forget for a second about his his, you know, his ability to see very far and and very up close when we did like the sort of our CSI segment in the (laughs) middle of this of Saru being like, and enhance. Oh wait, I can do it myself. Yeah, I, I had forgotten all about that too. I feel like we haven't we haven't gotten into special Kelpian abilities for a very long time. Like not since he shed his quills. Right, because I feel like he does not necessarily get in a lot of fist to fist action or like things that might require those skills. The exception being obviously episode two when he got in that bar brawl. So it's it's fun to explore. Like, yeah, he's not just sort of like a, a squid looking captain. Like he actually has interesting alien stuff as well. Yeah, it's something that I think sometimes this was truer of early Star Trek that you would just have some you just have some alien creature that just looked kind of cool mm-hmm. and you never got into what their life was like or what they did. And I think Star Trek has gotten way better at that over the years. And to that point, that segues perfectly into uncovering the book quite literally on this episode, because technically book, though a humanoid and human appearing is an alien and someone who has those powers. So I guess, you know, the first question is, what did you think about the choice at this point in the season, especially to, to sort of now find out more about this character? Well, I thought it was I thought it was good. It was about time. We definitely we definitely need to go there with him. I did feel like this episode was a little bit derivative of several Star Trek episodes. I'm thinking in particular, Jean-Luc Picard going home to the family vineyard. Mm, and brothers. maybe yes brothers and maybe even a little bit of last season picard when yet again he goes down to the surface of a planet to see an old friend and eat a very tiny pizza <sighs> and it's sort of like these reunion episodes it's like oh here's my old friend from a long time ago or my old family member for a long time ago and they need me to do a thing for them and i'm gonna do a thing and discover something new about myself and my bond in the process and oh yeah they have a child look at it's a child i want to meet the child i want to hang out with the child a little bit and that those beats are very common in these sort of homecoming-y episodes however i did think there was more they could have revealed about book. And I think one of the big questions of the season for me with regard to book is how is there a guy who's not from earth with a very earthy name, Cleveland Booker? And those are very earth names. And we did get a partial answer to this because his actual name is 
Tarex. Yeah, or- and, and he, he essentially like gave himself his, his own name to go by. It seems like the nickname is something we're going to eventually find out about. I don't know if that's going to be like a this season thing or maybe in his on his deathbed. That'll be the last thing that he says to an aging Michael Burnham. What I liked about this this sort of reexamination of Book's character is in the very first episode when we met him, he talked a bit about his home planet saying like, yeah, you know, uh, um, everyone on my planet has these skills, these empathizing with creature skills. But essentially, like I'm the black sheep of the family because Everyone else uses them to hunt, and I use them to essentially care for them. And we thought initially it was going to be like sort of a forced dyad, right? Of like he was sort of balancing it out. That turns out to not be the case. It is more nurture than nature. And it turns out that the predatory aspects of the the people of Quajon is more so because they're basically getting like squeezed out by the Emerald Chain. And it's more about like a mob rule of this planet than maybe just a natural hunting like you might experience with like the Baul and the Kelpians. It's yeah, this is true. And I think it also we've kind of delved into this week. We've talked a lot about in the past about the Star Trek universe and about how the abilities that they have, like especially warp capabilities and the, the, the strength of the Federation. We've talked about like how much that can be used as a force for good. And if speaking of dyads, this is like, let's take all of the things that the Federation has used for good. And let's imagine what is the worst possible thing you could do with those things. Mm-hmm. Like, why do they have the prime directive? And let's think about if there was no prime directive or if someone just, you know, whipped it out and peed all over the prime directive, what would that look like? <laughs> yeah, Calvin style on the decal on the back of someone's car. Oh, you know Osira has one of those on her spaceship. Oh, yeah, it's just in a huge form. It's it's Calvin peeing on the Federation logo. Because, yeah, like you said, I think uh, Admiral Fridge says that in his little one scene in this episode, right? That essentially they've been doing like the dark side of the Prime Directive in going to non-warp capable societies and being like, yeah, I have the means to help you and you have a way that you're going to help me or else. Yeah, it's almost as if... It's almost as if people with a lot of power and money descended on a working class, if you will, and exploited their labor and gave them nothing in return. Yeah. I mean, it's not. Are you saying it's somehow connected to capitalism coming back, Jess? Because I really don't see that connection. Yeah, I, I think I, I, it's just it's just a theory. I'm mm-hmm. just spitballing here. I don't have a lot to back it up, but it's something I've been working on. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I would say what I've been saying the past couple of weeks as well as as much as I'm liking this, the structure of these episodes. I do think that the the Quajon sort of life and especially like the the Kahim book relationship, I it did seem a bit quick to develop. I mean, they do come to verbal blows and then physical blows. And it, I, I feel still feel like there there's a bit more that needs to be filled in the story there as to like, when exactly this happened, it did really seem like Book just up and abandoned his family. And I guess, you know, it ended up, it, it was a good dynamic that was built out, in my opinion, where, like, you could see both sides of the argument, especially when they were literally arguing back and forth, where, you know, Book's essentially telling Kahim, like, yeah, you're a murderer right now. Kahim's like, uh, let's look at us. I'm doing what I can to have us survive. We can't all just up and leave like you do. And and that's what Star Trek has always done at its best, in my opinion, is not maybe not like humanize the enemies, but give them a POV that rationalizes what they do. And so I wouldn't call Kahim an enemy necessarily, but I, I do think when he was the enemy to book in that moment, I could very much see where each brother was coming from. It is a curious choice we're making to discuss this right now, Mike, um, about this overarching 
theme of having the villains have a real purpose and have something that they really want and a reason for doing the things they do. Um, when I feel like maybe we're getting the first Star Trek villain that doesn't do that. It's like, mm. okay, Kaheen is, is a sort of bad guy who's do, doing some bad things because he's got a family protect. Osira just fed her family to a transworm because yeah. she was annoyed with him. Yeah, I mean, I think Osira might be one of the most cartoony villains uh, that we've had in a long time. Because even someone like, you know, uh, Mirror Lorca in season one, right, like had his own rationale behind things. It might have gone a bit off the wall. But yeah, it truly does seem like Osira is that sort of chaotic bad of, uh, all right, I don't care. I'll I'll feed my closest family members to a transform as punishment for letting Rin go. Like, when I want something, I'm going to get it, and I'll stop at nothing and mow down my own allies to get that. Yeah, it, it was really, like, the only thing that she was missing was a mustache to twirl. Exactly. And she has a lot of hair, so she could very easily just pull it over. Yeah, yeah. Or just, like, put your finger over your upper lip, like... Yeah, like she, maybe she would thinks, tattoo it. Yeah. Yeah, she could have a tattoo there. Like, my kid thinks that's the most hilarious thing anybody can do. So. So, yeah, so let's talk about that, because obviously we can get into the Osira of it all, because she was, you know, stymied at the moment, thanks to, I guess this might be the end of the Detmer's Got the Yips uh, <laughs> storyline, because she she came through here. But she, you know, very much again, like in the style of a Team Rocket, was like, I'm, I'll get you, Federation. Do you think we have five episodes left? Do, do you think Osira is going to be like the the big person that, that ends up making up our finale here? I think she I think she does. She absolutely does because if she doesn't then there's no reason for her not to die right here. Like mm. she could have done the whole It's like and again because this is the most Star Warsy Star Trek ever. I'm going to draw the analogy at the end of Star Wars a New Hope when Luke blows up the Death Star. You see Darth Vader get into the escape pod and he's like spinning out and going away because we know Darth Vader has to come back. And mm. it's the same thing here. We could just make the whole ship go explodey, but we didn't because Osiris is going to have more to do later on. And I, I find that a little disappointing, to be honest, because I didn't love her one dimensionality. Right. And I didn't really it felt to me like kind of the worst of the walking dead when mm. there are these plot arcs where it's like, Ooh, there's a bad person who's trying to make your life miserable. And we don't really know why it's just that, you know, there's nobody here to make them not make your life miserable. And there were a few, especially fear the walking dead had a bunch of these villains where they just kind of like mess with other people because it was the apocalypse and they could. And I feel like Osira is kind of, it seems like she has a lot of business ventures, but they're not really – she doesn't have a very good head for business given that she has to rely on the exploitation of slave labor. And we learn a little bit about this. Like she doesn't even have dilithium anymore, so she's going to be pretty hosed. Um, and I guess maybe the desperation that comes with not having all the money that you're accustomed to having could be her motivator, but that's – not a fun villain to watch. Yeah. Are you saying that the final shot of this season is going to be all the Discovery crew lined up kneeling and Osira walks down with like uh, some barbed wire wrapped around a transworm ready to swing it, <laughs> chanting a nice Orion uh, nursery rhyme? You know, weirder things have happened, Mike, yeah. but I'm, I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying. I do agree that I think that, you know, I, I'm I'm definitely of, of a couple minds with Osira as well. That I don't necessarily need to see her come back like... 
you know, I think one thing that this season has greatly benefited from from the previous two is that we have the lack of a cataclysmic, we need to do something or the universal end type of thing. And I don't feel like Osiris is representing that, but she is like still a a big thing to work towards. That it almost makes me feel like we've been having so much fun so far. Is it really necessary to include that? And I do feel like it's maybe a bit of a late game push, but this is also a series that like introduced things like Mirror Lorca and Control so late in the, in their own respective seasons that this seems to now be commonplace for something like Star Trek Discovery of like, everything will be fine. We're getting settled in for the first half of the season. And then the second half will really reveal like what the true problem is. Yeah, it, that's very Hitchcockian. You know, mm. like you think you think it's about one thing and it's really about another thing. I will say, though, it is kind of a letdown after, you know, we have saved the entire universe several times in rapid succession. And now the person we're going to like now our big obstacle to everything being OK is this like green lady that owns a couple of factories. Right. Exactly. That's the thing as well is that we don't really. We haven't really experienced yet the full, she threatens you will feel the weight of the chain. We have not necessarily felt it yet. Like we've seen on Hun Hao, uh, which I was surprised we revisited. I thought that when Georgia was like firing and stuff that it like blew up, blew up, like everything got raised. But it seems like they were relatively okay sans the slaves escaping. Um, but it seems like, you know, we saw some some bad conditions there and we found out the deal that they have going on planets like uh, like Quajon. But we haven't seen really a lot of other people. You know, I think the the Emerald Chain in terms of Andorians and Orions have appeared in three episodes out of eight so far. So I'll be intrigued to see if they continue to build that up or if it just ends up being like a two part finale where they're like, oh, well, Osiris back. She swore she she swore vengeance and now she's got the big guns. We're going to need to take her down. So to your point, you know, Rin makes this revelation here and. Very cute tongue-in-cheek thing with Mary Wiseman and her husband with a lot of blue loafs sitting down and having a conversation <laughs> together uh, that, you know, Rin is essentially an asset because he is one of the only people who knows Osiris' big secret, which is that she's running out of dilithium. And I do to that point, though, you know, we know that desperate animals, when cornered, can claw someone's eye out and then some. So I do wonder from, like, a fright perspective, an Osiris who is just growing increasingly desperate to get something back or get some maybe even just go right up for dilithium considering she's running out of it might actually pose a greater danger than we're thinking yeah maybe but i still it's really hard to picture her as posing any kind of real threat to the crew it's almost like I'm not spoiled on anything, but I feel like I have been spoiled. I feel like I know, I know where Osiris' story is heading. I know what's going to happen here. And it is, she's bad and they're good and they're going to stop her and justice prevails. And she's such a, she doesn't have any motivations. I even feel like the big reveal of why she wanted Rin. I thought that was weak sauce. Mm. Like, and you know, what is he, what does he have on her? Does he have like, does he have a MacGuffin filled with information? Yeah, or, like, or do does, we does, just... he, does he have the information that she actually or the Orions caused the burn a hundred years ago? And like, does he yeah. have that information to leak? Yeah, I don't know what he could possibly have apart from a really good story. Mm. And maybe it'll turn out that he's actually got something else that's even better. But yeah, this really didn't seem like much of a reveal. Like, oh, she doesn't have very much of a limited commodity that nobody has very much of. Okay. Yeah, like the the person who once claimed they were rich is no longer rich. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, 
that I, I mean, you can ride that grift for a really long time, Mike, mm-hmm. as I, you know, I've, I've heard that that is a popular thing you can do, but I, I don't know that, I don't know that somebody knowing that about a person would really put their life in danger. What, what did you think about? Cause this is obviously like now more of a full glimpse at Rin. And we're going to talk, I think about the impact of book wanting to stay aboard disco. What do you think is going to happen with Rin? Cause now, I mean, to our point, as, as weak sauce as the info may be, he is now going to be like the thing that Osiris is going to keep targeting the Federation for. Like, is he going to keep going with disco? Or are they going to like house him at Federation HQ under lock and key? They're going to put him in, in a safe house where he can just like watch TV and order pizza. Yeah. Can they do like witness protection? Like just make him look like a Klingon, change his name. You know, they can make humans, they can make Klingons look like humans. They can make humans look like Klingons. Yeah, like where's Laurel? Come in and like do the really gory graphic surgery. Make him actually make him into uh, Shazad Latif. Make him look like Ash Tyler. But now he's rid <laughs> him. That's how you get him back on the show. That's a really great way to bring him back. I mean, or, you know, like, just take the loaf off. Make him look like a human. He's a good-looking guy. Yeah, that's you know, actually remember, very true. Yeah, remember when Gold Ducat took off all his Cardassian makeup and looked like a Bajoran and he was kind of hot? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, have him pull a Mark, Mark Alamo and just, you know, go back down to human form so that nobody would be the wiser. I think even Osira would be like, I don't, I don't think that's him. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember Rin being that much of a snack. Exactly. Hmm. No, I would definitely would have fed him to the Transforms as a snack beforehand. So, no, <laughs> I'm, we're moving on. That could be something. Because, yeah, I mean, again, while Book has sort of now found his own or trying to seek a role as sort of like this tertiary independent figure. Now there's sort of the Rin problem. We're granted, you know, Rin has been helping Discovery again. He sort of had those couple of scenes with Detmer. But now he's kind of the oddball out of like, yeah, I don't like the Federation, but I guess I'll help you in this case. And we've always had that kind of oddball character, too. Like for a while, it was Giorgio. Yeah. And then for a while, it was Book. There's always somebody. And I kind of love that about this particular iteration of Star Trek is that they acknowledge that the Federation isn't the be all end all and like not everybody in the universe is in Starfleet. And the way that people that are not in Starfleet interact with Starfleet kind of tells you a few things about Starfleet. Exactly. Or even like watching, to your point, everyone on the ship is not following the same flag. So it's not like you have rules you can unify around. So you have someone like Georgia who has been a thorn in Saru's side because she's like, screw the Federation rules. I do what I want. Uh, I, I do what, you know, is, is at my own whim. And so that causes a bit of a, a some conflict and inherent drama for that. And Rin is not as much of a stick in the mud as that. He did have, you know, some choice words. And I did love, I love, listen, I know that the choice to make Tilly first officer is still a bit of a contentious one online. But I got to say, one episode, and I'm loving First Officer Tilly mood. You know, like she is, she's got the hollow stuff up. She's helping Saru with the secret mission of picking his his uh, his go to warp catchphrase. She tells off Rin as soon as he walks in, basically saying, like, watch your tone, mister. Like, I think anybody who had trepidation about Tilly's promotion here, I think that goes out the airlock in this episode. Yeah. And I think I think the role looks good on Tilly. I think she's doing a great job. But I also just love her interaction with Saru as kind of his chief confidant. And that grew very quickly, but it felt organic. And it felt like you understand why he chose her and you understand why he correctly thought she would be good in the role. Well, because we've even talked about that last week, right? Of like in a post-Michael Burnham betrayal world, 
would Saru trust, trust anybody? And I'm very glad that he at least picked one person here until like, to the point where I think it is something very personal for a captain to be like, I don't, I don't know what cool thing to say uh, when we make the ship go fast. Can you help me do a bit of a think tank on that, but don't let anybody know? Yeah, that was... That also that felt very uh, lower decks, to be honest. Yes, it did, like, and and I, and I was happy about that. You know, I think let's let's not save the, reserve the meta moments for the very meta show. I, I like small things. I like them referencing, you know, last season's Captain Pike as well. Until he being like, well, listen, it's a new era. You could technically repurpose it if you want to, which again is a great meta call out to like yeah. all of the retconning they've done of TOS era stuff in this in this uh, series. Yeah, nobody's gonna remember that that was his thing. Um, you could probably even do engage if you wanted. Like nobody's gonna yeah, call you on that. Definitely nobody nobody's done that yet in our timeline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah so what, what what did you ultimately make because of what I think uh hit it? No, carry on is carry is, on. Carry on my wayward son uh around the sun. I think that's what he ultimately settled on. That's what he that I don't know. I think he might still be trying things on. Mm-hmm. But he seems like he seems like he could certainly it feels very passive though. Like carry on is sort of like, yeah, the thing you were already doing, you don't have to change a thing about it. I don't know how I feel about carry on as the go fast and do stuff thing. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't want to have a term that describes my luggage as something I should say to be like, go, go fast now, ship. I mean, the, the interesting thing as well is you also have to have, like, in my opinion, a temperament to pull it off. Like Picard had the very, you know, small but confident engage. Pike had the great lean and the, like just all the swagger in the world with hit it. I think Saru needs to find his groove as a captain, and that's what's going to sell it. Like I think it's even less the line and more so the way you say it. And this is the thing about Saru is he doesn't have that air of authority that the other captains have pretty much entirely to a man and woman have had. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just because that's not the role that he was necessarily he wanted it, but he wasn't necessarily like pushing for it his entire life because that's not really how Kelpians roll. We've always known that Saru is extremely competent and we know that he knows everything, but does he have the ability to lead? And that's what I think his journey is this season is finding that he's never going to have the Captain Pike swagger, but he might have the quiet Picard authority. Right. And another great thing that Tilly does in this episode, she is the one that comes up with the great idea of like, well, if we fire upon them, then the Federation's going to get in trouble. But we do happen to have, you know, a non-affiliated vessel on board that we can disguise our employees under and say, oh, bad Detmer, you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And especially I think you could see it clicking in Tilly's head that there's a few things this solves for. It also not only does it give the opportunity to take something, take a resource and use it to blow up the bad guys, but it also fixes Detmer in a way because you could see her gaining confidence slowly over the course of this and really finding, finding her groove. And I don't know if that means that Detmer having the yips is completely over, but it, this is really, this was Detmer's coming out party. I, I really feel like we didn't know anything about her up until this is the episode where she got a moment and they've been trying to make Detmer happen for several episodes. And I have just been like, oh, you're promoting someone up to the main stage, like you're calling her up to the big show, but you haven't shown me any of her sauce. And right. 
we should know much more about her than we do, just given how much of this journey she's been on with us. Sorry, I keep saying journey. It's because I've been watching a lot of Bachelorette. Um, mm. Apologies for that. Um, but she, this episode, I think there was a, there was a moment when it all kind of gelled for me and it's when Tilly tells her the plan and then it kind of zooms in on her and she gets this look on her face like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That's my plan. And you saw it. You saw it get fixed like right in her face in that moment. And mm. that was that to me, like that says, now I know who Detmer is and I know what she's about. And in any situation that this crew faces, I can kind of tell you what she's going to feel about it. Yeah. So I think, I mean, it, it's even, you know, I think a little egregious to say that it, the storyline is like Detmer has the yips and more so like, Detmer has anxiety about making a mistake. Like, even when they pulled uh, the Tikov out of the big ion storm a couple of episodes ago, she still did it, but she's like, yeah, but that was too close. So it's, it was clear that, like, Detmer, for some reason, had either been really shell-shocked or just had, like, a big personal crisis as to whether she is still able to do this job, considering how many lives are on the line. And to that point, I do think this was the culmination of that, where, like, she did something flawlessly. I do wonder, like... Was it the new technology that ended up helping cause this as well? Because it, at the end of the day, she took manual controls and she did it. Uh, so maybe it's just a matter of her being like, you know what? Screw all this new stuff. Like, nothing's going to be good old flying. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what this, you know what this scene looked like. You, this looked like, this looked like Luke Skywalker turning off his manual controls mm. to get to the exhaust port. It One was in a million so- shot, Denver. It was so Star Wars. Yeah, I, I do wonder actually if the point that Rin pointed out was an exhaust port that was indeed like unblocked and that one shot would have blown up the ship. Yeah, well, I, I, if anybody in this, anybody in this cast has seen Star Wars, it's going to be Rin. Yeah, exactly. Where's Rin? The Rin action figure coming, coming soon, I'm assuming. Yep. Like with detachable antenna. I also want to say, I, I feel like there are moments, specifically when we go planet side, there are certain times that I'm like, God, this show is beautiful. And the Quajon planet, just it's like eternal autumn combined with like just the, the glow of the, the sea locusts of it all was just really, really gorgeous. And again, it's really interesting to think about considering that even up to like Star Trek Enterprise, they were still relying on sound stages and caves for a lot of these planets. But I think the advent of new technology from our end has allowed for much more verdant landscapes and just much more beautiful things to look at when it comes to Star Trek. Yeah, this is really, they've been shooting on location a lot more and they've have these beautiful exterior shots. They really thought about what kind of varied landscapes can we do? And I think maybe the previous Star Treks didn't have the budget for this Mm -hmm. and they, they've been in so many different, it's almost like, you know, we're having next week, we're having the ice episode and we've got the forest episode and we had a lake episode. Right. It's, like, it's like going through like a video game, right? Of like you passed the desert level. Now you're on to the ice level. Yeah, exactly. And they picked out, they're like, okay, well, if we're going to have, we're going to have a forest episode, let's find the most beautiful forest in the world. And if we're going to have ice, let's find some sweeping glacial views that we can mm. put in there. And it's really, it's really a lot of fun that they care about the scenery and they're not just going back to the Vasquez rocks repeatedly. Exactly. And it's like, oh, we're going to have a beautiful forest and then we're going to carpet bomb the shit out of it. <laughs> and that being said, this this whole like 
sea locust thing felt very avatar-y to me and in yeah. a way that was off-putting. And I do not know for the life of me how Book was able to get the sentence out, sea locusts came out of the ocean and ate our harvest with a straight face because that's the most ludicrous shit ever. Yeah, I mean, that's also part and parcel when you sign on for like a sci-fi or fantasy series, right? It's like you have to just be able to to say a lot of ridiculous terms and phrases with a straight face. But yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. And I agree. I definitely got a big avatar sense of like, Maybe I just hadn't connected before of, you know, book connecting with animals, but this very much felt like maybe it was the blue, right? Maybe it was the sea mm-hmm. locust being blue that made that color connection of like, we will move them together only with our combined power will we make this happen and save our ecology. Yeah. Thanks, Captain Planet. Um, and they did this very well a couple of episodes ago when they went to Trill and yeah. they're just like walking through these beautiful manicured gardens and this fish jumps out of the yeah. river that looks like half fish, half bird. And it was gorgeous. And you saw it for half a second and then it was gone. I think maybe if they'd had a whole episode around that fish, I would feel differently about it. But there, yeah. there, it's really less is more when it comes to the exotic creatures on other planets of it all. Yeah, we don't need like the, the, the most toys or whatever that episode was where like they had a bunch of creatures and then they said, this is our weird puppet over here. Oh, this is yeah. our weird puppet over here. Uh, yeah, and I, the sea locusts, I mean, I guess they're locusts, so it made sense that they were flying, but they were just, I don't know why they're the color of the sea necessarily. Maybe they're, maybe they're camouflaged to help not getting <laughs> eaten by predators, but it was, a, it was lovely to watch, but maybe not so much to, to think about. Yeah, didn't didn't love that. Don't love the concept of locusts in general. Yeah, and I was also interested that like, so we had this very natural, almost like agrarian environment, and then we go to Kahim's house. And he's living in like something you would see in like Big Little Lies, like a palatial, <laughs> like wood estate in the woods that looks extremely modern. And I understand, but I guess I had more so connected between books descriptions and the the nature scape of it to a more just naturalistic. Like I was expecting people in huts to be honest, or like, or like shanties, not necessarily like, yeah, here's my high rise in the middle of the woods where I'm going to interrogate you. He should be living in Chewbacca's treehouse. Yeah, he should be living on Kashyyyk. He should be. He should be watching little Jefferson Starship music videos waiting for life day to happen. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And, you know, later on, they can go to the bar that B. Arthur owns. Exactly. Uh, this is not the end, my friend. But yeah, so that was that was an interesting piece of just like, again, we were on it for a short portion of time. But I guess maybe the chain hooked him up. You know, she's like, hey, you know what? You did enough of your dirty work. Maybe it was he got sort of like indoctrinated into the mob of it all of like, mm-hmm. hey, here are the benefits. You know, you get you get a nice place while everyone else might have to, to suffer, especially when the sea locusts come. And I'm assuming eat everyone's homes as well. Yeah, I didn't. I think I'd have to see other people's homes to really make a call on how badly they're really doing. Because if Frank Lloyd Wright designed all of their homes, I'm going to feel like maybe we can go deal with someone else's locust problem. Yeah, maybe it was a thing where like a pod containing all the works of Frank Lloyd Wright crashed on Quajim and they're like, oh, what is this? All right, I, I guess I'll, <laughs> I'll guess we can look this up. This is what we will base our lives on from now on. It's sort of like that. Um, that planet on the original series that was all stuck in the fifties because mm. somebody had left a novel. Yeah, exactly. Of like, Oh, this is the, clearly what we should associate our lives around or like the planet that had, uh, that was based off of that, that one like pulp. Uh, yes. That's what novel. I'm talking about. That one. Yeah. The, yeah. the casino thing where Worf and, uh, and, and, yeah, that, and you're Jane right. That was TNG. Yeah. Yep. 
Yep. And they're like, well, we, we did, we created this whole world to entertain this guy because this was this one, the one book he brought. Exactly. And, and so, and so they, and they're like, I don't know how it ends. And so they essentially yeah. had to create the ending there. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe someone just really likes forests. And so they decided to create that entire planet around, but gave him a nice house as well. I mean, most planets have forests if they're M class, Mike. Yeah, that's very true. This is the thing that bothers me, though. This is the thing that's always bothered me about Star Trek mm-hmm. is the planet as is treated as a single entity. Like it's a right. desert planet or an ice planet or a forest planet. And like as if Earth is the only planet that has all of those things and the only planet that has like somebody in charge of discrete pieces of it rather than being in charge of the whole planet. Because I really feel like we were given to understand that this guy was in charge of the whole planet. Right. Yeah. It seemed like he was. You know, this is not like Navarre last week where he's like, I'm Kahim. I'm the president of, you know, of Quajon. But yeah, it did seem like he was at least in charge of a good portion of it. Maybe it sort of is like supporting that that South Park episode where they said that Earth was just a reality show where they plucked a bunch of different people from different <laughs> planets and put them in one. Like maybe Earth really is the melting pot or the mosaic in, in that regard, as opposed to other planets, which maybe are more singularly focused than we may think. I really feel like. In order to have a biome capable of sustaining life, you have to have a lot of different environments. Yeah, not just perpetual autumn. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. There's also um, my kids big into these Tinkerbell movies right now. And Mm -hmm. Tinkerbell is very much like this as well. Like there, there are four seasons on her planet, but you can't leave your season. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's it's a whole thing. So there are no snowbirds in the Tinkerbell series, essentially. Nobody travels during the colder months. Right, right. And they figure out, like, they invent these machines so they can, like, walk over the border, and then they have to go back right away. Interesting. It's very interesting. We're going to have to, maybe in the off-season, we'll, we'll explore the larger mythology of the Tinkerbell series. Yeah, if I want to get my kid to podcast. I mean, that's what the, the sea locusts kind of look like fairies as well with those, with those glows. Yeah, I really, I feel like you bring a human child to that planet, they're going to think those are fairies. They're going to capture one, and then it's going to eat them. Let's talk book for a second, because this has been I mean, you talk about this sort of like as a as a coming out party for Detmer. This is sort of like a coming out party for book when it comes to the Federation. Like Mm -hmm. he ends this episode starry eyed as all get out of like, wow, the Federation can really do some good stuff. I want in. And I know even before this episode, we we got a a tweet from the great James Keast, uh, formerly of the SNL podcast here on Poster Recast, basically being like, can there be a 10 forward on Disco (laughs) and Book is the bartender? And I would say even after Book's sort of declaration of I want to help, I still think that's the perfect position for him, if we're being honest. Yeah, I could see him definitely working in the bar. It's got to be one of those bars that's got like a giant fish tank. Built into the back of it. Yeah, exactly. Where he's like, all right, like, uh, you know, nobody get a lobster tonight. You know, I'll, they'll know which one of them is, is on thin ice. And yeah, I, I could see Book like really, I mean, he's got that, he's a smooth talker from being a courier. Like, he can definitely cut wise with basically everybody, uh, across, you know, whatever species you may be. Though again, we, we don't know exactly where it might be based, whether they would carve out the cafeteria or use that multi-purpose room that they, they used last episode <laughs> as well. But they do, I agree that especially in jumping 900 plus years into the future, like everyone needs a drink, even if it's Synthahol. I think we need a bar there. And I think Book needs to be the bartender. I love this. And you know what? Every single place I've worked that's had a multi-purpose room, the entire staff would have voted to turn that into a bar. Yeah, exactly. Like I think it's it's necessary. And they're doing that like debriefing anyway, right? Because Detmer was I feel like this this scene that we saw of Detmer like, you know, talking up her prestige of what she did in, in Bookship 
that could have very easily happened in the bar as well, right? Like that felt like an after work conversation you might have at a happy hour. Yeah. And you know, they've got all of that like movable matter stuff now. Mm, That's true. They have programmable matter. They can essentially make a mobile bar. Yeah, totally. Like, just put the bar wherever they want to have it. And so if like, Satan and is like, oh, no, we're actually doing uh, yet another trial in here this episode. They're like, okay, great. I'll just pack it up and move it somewhere else. Yep. And they get just like, computer, bar. Oh, yeah. So essentially make everything. That's actually something I, I found out uh, that I didn't really think about. But I think it was last episode or the episode before. Whenever Disco got an upgrade, I believe... Jess, that an Instagram post from Jet Reno's like uh, mission logs says that Discovery apparently now has holodecks. Ooh. Yeah. Well. So, so I do not know. And that might be more of like a season four thing or hell, even a short treks thing. But that makes me very excited. Or maybe, I don't know, the holodeck episodes of TNG were very hit or miss sometimes. So uh, but it'll be it'll be fun. It'll be a good deviation if they decide to go in that direction. But, you know, they did. We do know that because isn't that like they don't just have a grand piano kicking around yeah, the Discovery. No, so guess, that must have they must have been in the holodeck for that. Yeah, I guess that's true. Unless that is also programmable matter. Uh, but yeah, then that might have been in like the holodeck music conservatory. Yeah. Or maybe maybe disco always had. I mean, it is called disco. Maybe mm. they always had a music room or maybe like Stamets request requested like, oh, I'll go on board to work on my uh, mushroom research. But please give me a piano. Should we talk about that, by the way? Because, I mean, yes. so let's talk about the Adira and Stamets stuff. It's, it's, it's you know, small on scale, but I feel like big in repercussions, especially because going into this season, we knew that Blue Del Barrio appearing as Adira was going to be the first non-binary character. Up until this point, uh, the character had been gendered as she, her by all of the characters. But this is the episode when Blue finally comes out, for lack of a better term, as, as gender non-binary. Yeah, and Mike, I I have two feelings about this. I I'm really of two minds because mm. I thought that the scene was beautiful as it was. I thought that the the way with which it landed and the way that it was accepted after Adira had thought about it very carefully and had decided to be their authentic self, that was all great and we need that. But we need it in 2020. Mm. And it is weird that in the 3100s, that's still going to be a thing. And I don't know. I would really feel like Disco has done such a great job of like, oh, Stamets and Culber are married and nobody ever comments on it. Nobody's ever like, wow, it's good for you for living your authentic self and being who you are. Because nobody has to because that's not even an an ongoing concern anymore. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this was really – while we absolutely need non-binary representation and we need to have scenes like that where someone someone decides to go by their pronouns and decides to start telling people what their pronouns are. And then in converse, that person just responds with, okay, I respect yeah, right. that. I'll do that. Yeah, I I think those are very important moments to show, but it's also – it didn't feel like it was in sync with the time in which they are living. So, yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, first, I might forgive it a bit because it is a big topic that I could understand Star Trek sort of stepping outside and being like, we are referencing something that's going on right now. Maybe it's more less of a matter of, oh, being non-binary is still taboo in that time. And and more, they don't know who Adira is. 
And so mm-hmm. it was more so like, a, oh, I prefer this. Okay, great. It's almost like a, like a nickname. Like, oh, I prefer if you call me this. Okay, that's fine. Moving on. Yeah. So it's it's le- it was less of a big deal to the characters, maybe, despite being sort of underlined in a way that that really reverberates for the audience. Yeah. And there's also the fact that Adira is a teenager. And when you're a teenager, every revelation about yourself feels like the most important news in the world. So yeah. I suppose I can f- forgive that. And, but, you know, in a in a world in which you have bullions that have four genders, <laughs> I don't think people are going to get too hung up on your gender identity. Yeah, I mean, and I would uh, highly encourage I always usually encourage people to check out the Ready Room, but I really encourage people to check it out this particular week because uh, Will Will Wheaton sits down with Bluto Barrio and Ian Alexander and they they talk through this scene and. You know, Bluto Barrio is non-binary, but they said that essentially they were sort of dealing with a very similar type of, of conflict within themselves while they were on set. They are also very young as well. And so actually the the coming out of Adira in this scene mirrored what Blue did. And, and Blue sort of used Adira to come out to their parents and, and their loved ones. And I, I just think that is incredibly beautiful and shows how much this silly sci-fi series sometimes does have distinct effects on people's lives moving forward. Not just, I'm going to be known as this character for the rest of my life, but sometimes like figuring out who you are and what you want to do. I mean, I know it's, it's a big jump from like Jonathan Frakes using, using Star Trek to discover his love for directing, which he directed this episode to Blue Del Barrio using Star Trek to figure out their gender identity But I do feel like that it's sort of, you know, part of that same category of how these types of experiences and exploring a world where anything is possible can help you open up your mind as well. That's that's very true, Mike. And I think Star Trek has also always done a great job of figuring out how they can they can make the world more inclusive. And they look at the social issues of the time and they make a statement about it that's couched in these terms like in the future, this is not going to be an issue. I'm thinking about, you know, the same sex kiss and the interracial kiss mm-hmm. and um and the using this playground where anything's possible to explore what that means for what you for what you accept and what you embrace as part of the not just the human experience but the like universal experience. Yeah, and so again going back to that ready room, it was so cool because this was not necessarily Will Wheaton interviewing a cast member these are three people who underwent very similar types of dynamics on set sort of like gabbing about it because you know these are all three at the time they were filming these series very young people who found mentors in some of the other cast members and so to hear you know ian and blue talk about finding their dads in uh, Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp. And then we'll be in like beaming and being like, yeah, that's why like, I like Jonathan Frakes and uh, Brent Spiner were my two dads. And I, I just love, and we'll be enough. So really some things up beautifully, ironically enough, the week, a- week after Thanksgiving of like, you know, they say sometimes you can choose your family. My biological family sucks. So I chose my Star Trek family and I'm so glad you're a part of it. And you've chosen that family as well. And it's just, it was, it was incredibly moving and incredibly cool to watch people connect with similar themes, even across decades of shows. Yeah, that was that was my favorite moment of the Ready Room as well. Although I, I liked Bill Wheaton noting that we're three of the four people in the exclusive club of people that have been teenagers on Star Trek. Yeah, that's very true. Where's Sirach Lofton when you need him? 
Yeah, they should have they should have called him up and had him drop in. Yeah, I mean, I'd actually so I know he had been before Aaron Eisenberg's unfortunate passing. They've been going through Deep Space Nine. I wonder if he's ever gone ahead and reviewed a newer Star Trek series as well, or if he's just sticking with the the stuff that he knows personally. Yeah, I I wouldn't know, but I did. I did think that this was if you know if you're going to watch one ready room this season, this is the one to watch. Completely agree. Maybe we'll put it in the in the show notes as well. I guess speaking of of Adira, before we we want to finish off with the George of it all because there is speaking of the ready room, some some big spoiler stuff that got shown for next week that I think we cannot not include in our discussion of the Georgio stuff. Should we talk about like the the brief stuff we got about the burn this episode with like the the nebula and the distress call that that they found in it? You know, this didn't feel like it furthered the story that much. I mean, we, we knew that they, that the mysterious song probably had something to do right. with the burn. And we figured they were going to find the point where the burn originated. And they did that. And there was a song. And I don't think that necessarily reveals something amazing about it. It, it pushes it forward, but this was really. The whole episode felt sort of like chess pieces moving around the board to me, and we didn't really get any decisive moves that will change the game. Yeah, the only thing I gleaned from it really was, again, you know, they found, they finally found where it started, which was in this Verubin nebula, nebula, I think it was called, and they found within it like a Federation distress signal. So maybe it shows that like there was a ship that actually caused the burn to happen so maybe that's going to be a thing maybe we're going to find out like maybe some sort of cataclysmic event happened on board that caused that but yeah like you said i mean i, I was intrigued that they said oh yeah you know Adira's is going to be able to make this algorithm to reverse engineer it so we can find out what was in the distress call and then they didn't do that uh the rest of the episode which listen yeah. again i'm i'm fine focusing on character over plot sometimes that's why i loved episode four so much but it, it was surprising again considering where we usually are in a star trek discovery season at this point yeah, and I have theories about what we might be coming up to next, but in order to really dig into those, I think it has so much to do with what we saw in the brief clips for next week. Also, I want to point out that the user interface on how you find the ready room is really terrible. Oh, interesting. Um, like it is it is hard to just like search for it on CBS All Access. You have to go into the episode and actually like it's listed as an extra for the episode. Interesting. I just go to YouTube. Because it's on the yeah. CBS All Access account. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, that's, so that's much easier. And then, of course, the algorithm has now sort of kept it in there. So yeah, I guess I would definitely recommend YouTube above CBS All Access for that, bar none. Yeah, I, I think you're probably onto something there, Mike. Yeah, because it, it, for the long time, I wasn't even watching it because I couldn't find it. And you can also play that at multiple speeds, which is very fun. Will Wheaton is a very excitable person. So to hear him talk <laughs> even faster is almost like a test in and of itself. But it's very it's very fun. Yeah, I, I love that all these streaming services are now rolling out the playback speed. Yeah. Because it really helps you get through a lot more. Yeah, no, sometimes sometimes we don't have time for that. But yeah, so so we're just to preface what's about to happen. So we're gonna get into I think the final thing that we haven't crossed yet, which is everything going on with Giorgio. But there was a scene in the ready room for next week's episode that really drops a big bomb Osiris style as to what's going on. And we felt like it would be almost impossible to sort of like speculate on what happened in episode eight without talking about what we're going to find out in episode nine. So this is your warning now. If you don't want to find out about what's going to happen next episode, hop out now, you know, get out of here, uh, but come back next week. And, and once you find out, then by watching the episode, we can get more into it. 
Yep. So that's that's your warning. We don't have a song to the tune of Despacito, but we're doing our best here. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're going to get David Cronenberg back mm-hmm. and he's going to tell us about the temporal wars. And here's my theory, Mike. I think there's something in the burn that could send everybody back through time and there's some kind of time rift going on and they'll be able to undo the burn by going back in time and stopping it. Oh, interesting. So we had another time jump, this time not as far back or far forward as they went, but to go back 100 years or so to try to stop the burn from happening. Yes, exactly. And that would be why we keep lampshading how it's not okay to travel in time and you're in trouble for traveling in time, even though you didn't know that the law hadn't been enacted yet. Mm. And, you know, we're going to talk about the temporal wars and why you can't use time to mess with things, even though we spent all of season two using time to mess with things. Uh, So I think getting that little nugget of information about here, I'm going to go show you an instructional film about the temporal, temporal wars. That says to me that time is going to be a factor again. And yeah, which we we weren't sure about, right? We weren't sure if disco was going to stay in this era, which it still might, but there might be some more time travel in their future. Another big thing that came out of this scene was that essentially we found out maybe not what was going on with Giorgio, but why it was happening to Giorgio. We had we had um, speculated beforehand that maybe you know we didn't see when Cronenberg had really interviewed a lot of Giorgio. Maybe he did something to fuss with her. And maybe he did, maybe he's lying, but basically he said that what Giorgio is undergoing right now in terms of like basically her mind decomposing is a combination of not only time traveling, but dimension traveling. And as an example, he uses a vessel that was mentioned from the Kelvin timeline. And so, you know, through Picard, we had pretty much, you know, confirmed that like the Romulan stuff, uh, the Romulan uh, supernova was pretty much canon. But here, just like flat out is our first reference outright to the Kelvin timeline and the J.J. Abrams series of films being from a distinct other universe. That's just crazy to me that they took that and made it canon. Yeah. Like they just decided, okay, we can have these, we can have our cake and eat it too. Like we can have a totally different retelling of Star Trek. We'll just pretend it's a different universe where Kirk looks like Chris Pine. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, well, sometimes in different universes, they're they're played by different people uh, in, a, in a manner of speaking. <laughs> Those roles are filled out by different people. And so, you know, the reason why everyone in Discovery jumped through the wormhole and was completely fine, except for Giorgio, is because Giorgio was not from the Prime Universe. She's from the mirror universe. And so essentially jumping through time in a dimension that is not your home dimension tends to have a much more negative effect on you than if it's your home dimension. And that's why she sort of is like, I don't know. I can't even describe what she's going through, Jess, because it looked like for a second, like our my screen quality might have dipped or something because there was like parts of her that were being like pulled or distorted, like in Photoshop when she was in that bio bed. She's buffering. Yeah, it looked like she was buffering for a hot second. And even Culber's like, what is this? So, yeah, it's possible that it's possible that she's going to have to go back to her universe at some point mm. or that we're going to go have to go back to her universe at some point. And maybe maybe it's some of the what if the what if the location of the burn is like a portal to that other universe? Like, yeah, I mean, what if the universes are blurred inside of that nebula? 
Yeah, I mean, that could have been sort of like the boundary between the two universes. And I know that, uh, you know, Cronenberg said they'd been drifting apart for the past 500 years, essentially. But maybe there was a time where, like, that was the big convergence point, And maybe the burn wiped it out. And that was, like, the big thing that pushed them to the ends of the universe. Yeah, or maybe in the other universe, there was, like, some sort of cataclysmic universe-destroying device. And they're like, we have to save ourselves. We have to save the universe. And so they chucked it into the other universe. (laughs) It's, It's the other universe's problem. Yeah, like get it out of here, get it somewhere else, put it where it'll be safe, and it yeah they they yeeted it into this universe. Yeah, so essentially this is like a version of uh, traveling to a different country and like not taking well to maybe the time change or the altitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of is what Georgia is going through right now, but in a very alarming basis. I'm still confused as to where the flashbacks fall on this, as to whether these are repressed memories or just her sort of like looking back on her life or looking back on her life in the other universe as like that facet of the other universe is being pulled out of her. But I'm assuming we're going to find this out, obviously, given that secret scene in the next couple of episodes. I mean, we got to find it out soon because that was the thing I thought. I thought that was going to be the mystery. Like, why is she having these flashbacks? But also, what are these flashbacks? And the fact that we didn't get any clarity on them, they just sort of showed you the same one again. I was I was disappointed in that because I want to know. And it's yeah. like there's a lot of stuff that they explained to me that I didn't actually care whether I knew or not. And this was one of the things that I would rather have had. I will say, though, I never would have dreamed of what a Giorgio Colbert dynamic would have looked like. <laughs> but I, I kind of love it because he is great at giving it back to her. Like, he's like, yeah, you might be, like, projecting all you want to, but the fact of the matter is uh, you're sick, and I know you're sick, and you're going to die without my help. Yeah, he's he's such a dad. Yeah, I mean, she she said, like, uh, what'd she say? Like, I'll, I'll do something that, like, I'll, I'll you know, poke your... Ch- I have images of, you know, poking your children's eyes out. He's like, if I wanted to have kids, I would right now. <laughs> yeah, but he, he's a dad with no kids. Yeah, exactly. So I know we talked about how uh, maybe Culber has more of a hard-ass approach when it came to stuff on, like, the Barzan ship a few episodes ago. But I don't know. I think No Nonsense Culber is, like, slowly becoming my favorite character on this show just because, like, he really... There's a lot of bullshit that happens on Star Trek Discovery, and he's just like, I no, I'm seeing through everything you're doing right now. Yeah, and it's interesting. He's kind of pivoted into this role. Like, they don't have a ship counselor, but he has started to take this on. And it's again, it's kind of that same energy like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I guess I'm going to have to do it because these people need it. And he's he's just sort of he psychoanalyzes every person that comes into him. He's like, yeah, cut the bullshit. I know who you are. I know what you're about. And it's very funny that that didn't seem like that was what he was about. Like maybe, maybe it was just like once you have died and come back, you have no tolerance for other people's frivolous problems but he really does seem like he just wants to get in your head and fix you and get and send you on your way yeah i mean maybe it is to your point because i mean we saw that uh cobra had a bit of a personality change when he came back last season which is why it was a little weird when we came back into this season he was sort of back to like lovey-dovey culver maybe he's bringing back the guy who like you know nearly killed uh ash tyler last season in in the cafeteria before they became bros of like he has a little bit of that hard edge to him I mean, the lines are still blurred at this moment. Like, Giorgio going to see him rather than Dr. Pollard first really just continues to question who's really in charge of, of that medical uh, that medical crew. Because Cobra apparently also has his own office. 
two, <laughs> which like even like, you know, your chief engineer doesn't even have his own office. Well, I, I would argue that the chief engineer's office is the engine room. I guess so. I guess, you know, he has the ability to be able to step away from his work. Uh, Culber does. So he has he has that sort of luxury. But then Michael gets involved. And that's another great moment is where we're like Michael is now sort of seeing through her, her bullshit where she all, all, completes her line. Right. Of like, uh, I killed my mother. So, and, and no, you didn't. I, I'm just going to call <laughs> that out as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's. But it's interesting. You do get glimpses of lovey-dovey Colbert. Like, he is very much like that with Stamets. And yeah. I think to some extent, he's also – even before I watched The Ready Room, I had the note that that Stamets and Colbert were, were being Adira's dads. And he really does have that nurturing side of him. He brings it out when he's not in the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. Is I think – do you think of all people – Colbert is someone and maybe that's just part and parcel with being part of the medical field is like he is a person that tends to sort of leave it on the field, leave work at work. Yeah, and, then when, and then when he, he sits down and they brush with their like dual black toothbrushes with Stamets, he's like, all right, like you can talk about work, but like I'm going to decompress for the day personally. Yeah, he really has this work life balance thing figured out. Like he can leave it at he can leave it in the office and come home and like be himself. Yeah, maybe that's why he's my favorite, because I think he's the most, like, mentally stable of all these characters. Like, he has his mental health on lock. Yeah, that's why he stepped into the counselor role. He's like, I'm the only sane person on this ship. Someone's got to fix these guys. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we'll we'll see. Obviously, it's going to be a big couple of episodes for Jojo, because I do believe, actually, in the, the log line for next week is that they are going to go to some planet to help Jojo, whatever that may mean. Uh, so I think her crisis is going to definitely be the center of Jess. Uh, our first two-part episode proper of the season. You know, I don't believe it anymore, Mike, because they've called everything like part three and part one, and <laughs> they're just throwing parts on every episode title. So, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Yes, but I mean, it is interesting. Back during the days of really non-serialized Trek, there was a distinct difference between the way non, you know, part one and part two episodes ended and the way that the the to-be-continued episodes ended. I wonder if this is going to reflect here as well, because I do feel like the the previous episodes that have been divided up into part one and part two were done so in post because the episode was just so big. And it does feel like like this episode is being billed as Terra Firma part one next week, Terra Firma part two the week after. Could we get like a big to be continued moment to take us from episode nine into episode 10? So you're saying they're reverse amazing race. Yeah. They're, yeah. Like they're going to instead of saying this, uh, these two episodes are a two parter. They're going to say, like, this is this is one continuous story with a break in the middle. Exactly. A, a six, a seven, seven day break in between you can where you can really decompress and then move on. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how self-sufficient this episode is, because I do feel like the past few episodes have been, again, pretty self-sufficient in their storytelling and like going to a place, doing a thing and then going back to home base. Evidently, we, we might not be doing that for the next couple of weeks. Well, it would be nice to see them go a little further afield, given that the only ship that can. Um, mm. And it just reminds me, every time there's a two-part Star Trek episode, I just think all over again about people watching Star Trek Next Generation in its original run, having to watch the best of both worlds six months apart. Mr. Worf, fire. And wait half a year before we found out and find out what happens. I would have been so mad. I think I would have, I would have rage quit the show. I would have been so mad. Yeah, exactly. Or just like, or like ferociously if the internet was around at that time you better believe like people were ferociously checking out spoilers of like 
you know, much like Game of Thrones of like, wait, they couldn't have killed Jon Snow because let's look at Kit Harrington's. People were looking at Patrick Stewart's hair length, I'm sure, to determine <laughs> like, oh, is he going to be back or have they killed him off for good? Yeah, I it's I think watching television was probably in many ways more fun before we had the Internet. Exactly. But without that, you wouldn't be able to have great podcasts like this. So I think there's there's an advantage to every era that we live in. It's true. And I, I it's always a trade. So speaking of of great things on the internet, Mike, what else are you up to? So uh, on Post Show Recaps, got a couple of fun things. This past week, Josh Wiggler and I talked DOC. We're talking Sun and Jin Kwan. So you know we had a great time. Put out some pretty bananas theories as well. So check that out on Down the Hatch. Also, uh, we talked, you know, last week about Catch-22, but there's a lot of brother talk between Desmond Hume and now uh, Kahim and Book this week. So I'm all into brotherhood right now. But... Jess, uh, you can say I'm having an all-star week because I'm going from Star Trek to Star Wars. I'm going to be on the Mandalorian podcast this week. It's going to be myself and Kevin Mahadeo breaking down what I would call is a pretty gripping but emotionally devastating episode of of the mandalorian but i'm very excited we haven't recorded that yet at the point this is coming out but i'm very excited to get down with kevin and talk about everything that happened and then other than that jess you and i are doing some amazing race stuff as we're nearing the final few weeks of that and i'm doing some other survivor stuff as well uh talking you know noticeable hats and seasons to recommend for survivor there's a lot going on right now yeah mike you are maybe the second busiest man in podcasting I'll, be the, I'll sure. be the number one in that regard. That <laughs> yeah, and you, it's true. Uh, and, you know, you have you've basically covered everything I'm doing, because right now the only things on my plate are things I'm doing with you, Mike. So you yeah, should feel so honored. I, I think we could put drop something in there, you know, a Verabin Nebula, Nebula style that there will be a post show recaps project that will be coming people away featuring the great voice of Jessica Lee's on a different podcast sooner rather than later. Yeah, but we're not allowed to talk about what that is yet, Mike. Uh, that's Star so. Trek Discovery, though, right? We're dropping this right now, and then like three right, weeks right. from now, we'll get more information about it. Yeah, this was not the, you know, I didn't give you the information you wanted to know. I just gave you some additional information to open up the universe of possibilities. Right. And so, and if you have information about, you know, future episodes or your own thoughts about the episodes and what's going on for the rest of the season, of course, you can always reach out to us on social media at Posture Recaps. You can also add us directly, as long as it's nice and constructive things. Jess is at Haymaker Hattie. I am at a Mike Bloom type. But a lot of our conversation, Star Trek included, is going down in the post-show recaps patron discord. Those that become patrons of post-show recaps at patreon.com slash post-show recaps at the $10 level, not $10 worth of dilithium, but $10 proper, get access to a discord that has conversations about Star Trek, Star Wars, Lost, the Walking Dead, literally anything and everything that is on television, in cinema, and in our lives is being discussed there, plus game nights, uh, live watch parties alongside Josh Wiggler. There is so much happening there. It's a great way to communicate with nerds all around the world like us. So if you're incentivized, it's the beginning of the month, so you're going to get your money's worth uh, since money gets pulled out of patron accounts at the beginning of every month. Check it out, patreon.com slash recaps, and join a community that has just been a barrel of fun so far. Yeah, I can't believe right out of the gate how great this community has been. It feels like this is a group of people that has known each other for years, and in many cases, it's like our first interaction with all of them. Another thing you can get at any level of being a patron of Post Show Recaps is the is several extra podcasts, at least three a week, um, including one where Josh just tells you about what he's watching on TV and 
there is also a podcast called Community Building, which Jess mm. Sterling tries to convince Josh that he needs to do a full rewatch of Community. And I think over the course of this podcast, he will end up doing one whether we reach our patron goal or not. Right. He almost gets sort of like tricked into doing it. It's true. He he did get sort of tricked. And then we also have Post Show Recaps Theater in which Josh and his lovely wife, Emily Fox, get together with people from throughout our podcasting universe to watch a movie of the listeners choosing. And I've been on that. Mike's been on that. And it is almost always fun. It is always fun, no matter what the movie is. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I think the listeners will realize that we are – the most entertaining thing to do is troll people the worst possible suggestion and make them watch it. But we're not there yet. It's all been entertaining stuff. Um, we also have a newsletter that I curate and write every week. And I don't know if anybody actually looks at it, but I'm having fun writing it. Yeah, so you can check all of that out. But otherwise, if you're just in it for Star Trek, Jess and I are going to be back next week, even though it's a two-part episode over two weeks. We're, we're going to stop down after part one to give our thoughts, no matter whether there be a two-be-continued or not, and, and talk about what's happening so far and what's to happen. I think we could dig some more also into like the whole Kelvin timeline circumstances of it all, especially for those people that did not watch the Star Trek 09 films. There there might be able to, to be some context, and maybe some, some new cameos might be able to happen now. I mean, I would I would hate to see Ethan Peck get elbowed out for Quinto. That'd be interesting if we had an Ethan Peck Quinto showdown. What if it was like that that gif with Spider-Man and Spider-Man? Yeah, just pointing at each other or Vulcan saluting at each other. Yeah, they definitely Vulcan salute at each other. Um, but I think that about covers us, Mike. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I, this has been... I mean, I can't believe we only have five episodes left. Granted, in Star Trek Discovery, a lot can happen in five episodes, but we are really rounding the bend here and i again to echo what we said at the beginning of the podcast i think it's been a very solid season so far definitely the show's most solid season and i i'm expecting that to continue through whatever twists are going to be coming our way in the next month and change i mean disco always takes us somewhere interesting even if we're not sure exactly where it's going to take us yet and i agree mike five episodes is a lot of disco Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're going to be back the next five weeks, no matter what's to come. But I'm expecting a lot of fun conversation, no matter what. Well, that's the show could be terrible. And sometimes the best conversation comes out of terrible shows, as we've learned on post show recaps. But this is a great show and we're having a great time talking about it. I hope you've all had a great time listening to it. So live long and prosper, everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs>